Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome, everyone. We are back, and I've came back to the destruction of tech companies. That's been the news over the past month. We have my portfolio. I'll be giving an update on it. This is called the Story Fund. It is a an aggressive growth-centered portfolio where I invest mostly in technology companies and cloud computing companies. So we'll see how that's doing and what the damage is right now. We also have a lot of other news going on right now that I want to comment on. We have Jay Powell testifying before Congress saying that the economy no longer needs stimulus. So he's telling us that we're going backwards now. We're not giving stimulus, we're kind of taking it away. We have Goldman Sachs' David Costin saying that tech companies, like the ones in my portfolio, are the most disconnected group of stocks from the rest of the market. Meaning he thinks that they might still be the most overvalued, disconnected companies in the market. I'll be sharing my thoughts on that and we'll be watching that interview. We have the news that cloud companies, like the ones that I'm invested in in this portfolio, have been getting slaughtered over the past two months. And I'll comment on that as well as the valuations of where they sit right now. We also have news that Charlie Munger, this this guy, Charlie Munger, just not only doubled down, he kind of tripled down on Alibaba, buying another 300,000 shares. And I'll share some thoughts on that and my updated opinion on Alibaba. And last but not least, Taco Bell has came out with a subscription service And I have to go over this as well. Because when a company like Taco Bell comes out with a subscription service, well, that catches my attention. So I'll be going over that as well. So obviously, we have a ton to get into today. Let's go ahead and jump right in. And if you're new here, make sure to subscribe, hit the little bell icon. Also, I think the thumbs up thing helps out the YouTube algorithm. So you can do that as well. All of that is completely free. Now, I also do things a little bit different than most other YouTubers. Might be a bit of a surprise but we have transparency here. I don't only talk about investments and companies and give my opinion on them, but I put my money where my mouth is. So I make investments in these companies. I track them week by week and I display the the results of it on YouTube live every single week. So if you want to see how this plays out all throughout 2022 and how this portfolio does, I'm going to show it whether it turns out good or bad. If it turns out bad, then I'll admit defeat, but I'll display the results either way. Now, let's go ahead and just do a quick overview of this portfolio. The Story Fund is centered around buying high-quality companies that are typically tech-focused, but not necessarily. Overall, I consider them to be world-class compounding companies with a very long runway of growth. So I'm not looking at this and underwriting these companies for a three-month bump in price. These aren't cigarette butt companies, right? I'm not trying to extract immediate value out of them. I'm trying to establish large positions in companies that I think have characteristics that will compound for long durations of time. And when I go through that, I look at companies that I think are often really simple, obvious buys. Those are sometimes, I think, the best companies to own, Google being one of them. People use Google products every single day, thousands of times a day, right? We're on them all the time, whether it's Gmail or Google Search or Google Maps or YouTube, you know, Google Cloud, all their business stuff. That's one of my top holdings. It's, in fact, right now, my top performing individual holding. Netflix is another one. This is more of a contrarian bet. A lot of people think that Netflix is widely overvalued. It's highly volatile. 
It's a highly disputed stock. I don't get as many people agreeing with me on Netflix as Google, but I'm investing heavily in this company as well. Um, and I have many videos on Netflix if you want to see my thesis on that overall. But overall, every company in this portfolio has a long duration, and I think they'll compound for a long duration of time. So having said that, let's go ahead and look at the returns so far of this tech kind of cloud computing technology-centered portfolio with the S&P 500. This is what it looks like. The S&P 500 is in red, and the story fund, my portfolio, is in blue. And this is what it looks like overall. Now, you can see that we were doing okay. In fact, we were kind of outperforming the S&P 500 uh, about two or three months back. And then my portfolio fell a little bit off a cliff here, just started to trade down incredibly quickly. And it, it even started to trade down lower and lower. Right here is where it hit the low point. This is at the end of the year. In fact, right at the beginning of the year. And then right now it's traded up a little bit. So we're at 9.36% returns overall since inception. And the, uh, the S&P 500 is at 22% returns. So given the past two months, I've given up a lot of the gains that I've made and traded down. And this correlates really heavily with the overall cloud computing and technology companies. So this isn't something where it's very specific to the companies that I've picked. This is something where it's been kind of in line with this entire indice overall. Now, to give this all context, I want to look at this chart here. This is a graph of the enterprise value to next 12 months revenue multiples of cloud computing companies in particular. So this shows since around 2015 is the beginning of this chart to current day. This shows the actual revenue multiple of these type of companies, of cloud computing companies, which are kind of the companies that I have in my portfolio. They're mostly cloud computing companies. And this chart correlates heavily with my performance. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. Before 2020, the enterprise value to next 12 months revenue multiple of these type of companies averaged around 11. It was right around 10 or 11. That's what they were trading at. That was kind of the normalized basis that they traded around, an 11 times next 12 months revenue multiple. Look what happened after the pandemic. Like many of the technology stocks, they traded up incredibly high. At one point, the median was at 20, 20 times next 12 months revenue. So they went up around 100% of where they were on a multiple basis. Then right after that, they traded down to around a 16 times multiple, still elevated from where they historically are. But look what happened just recently, right here. This is over just the past couple of months. The median multiple was at a 16 times revenue, and it traded from a 16 times down to an 11 times in an order of two months, from a 16 times multiple to an 11 times multiple. Now, where does, where does that leave us now? Right now, the 11 times multiple is around the median of where it was pre-pandemic. This is around the same multiple. In fact, it's almost the exact same of where these companies traded at pre-pandemic. So you have to ask yourself this question. Were these companies a good buy pre-pandemic, right, at that multiple before they had the huge run-up and positive investor sentiment? Were they an excellent buy then or were they just okay? That's up to you to decide. But either way, the valuation of cloud computing companies has improved dramatically as the prices have fallen. Now they are at a normalized pre-pandemic multiple that stayed for three years before that. And so I feel better buying these companies at this 11 times multiple than paying way up at a 16 times or a 20 times multiple. I've tried to buy them at as best prices as I could throughout this last year. 
but it's honestly been pretty difficult. Most of them have been at pretty stretched multiples, and now they've traded down dramatically. This drop in multiple with the overall indice also correlates with the drop in price in my portfolio. You can see that correlation right here. It started at the exact same time. So I'm not saying these companies are all undervalued right now, and I wouldn't make that conclusion. I am saying, though, that they are trading at a more normalized valuation than where they were. Can it continue to drop further to a you know, a seven times multiple or a six times multiple? Sure, they could drop further, but that would just mean that they're trading undervalued compared to their historic norm. So I think at this point, I feel better buying these companies than I did over the past year. And this is where things get really challenging as an investor. This is where the real test comes in. Do you have the right stomach, the right temperament, the right emotional control to be able to do this type of investing that's very specific to one type of company or one type of sector? If you wait for your sector to trade down in valuation, like tech companies are doing right now, and then as they're trading down, you think, man, I'm getting discouraged. And emotionally, I want to exit out of the sector and I want to go into uh, financials or energy or whatever is doing well right now and trading up. You probably don't have the right stomach or the right emotional control to be doing this type of investing. That makes it very difficult to make any type of gains if you try to trade out of sectors that are doing poorly into ones that have already had a great run up. That's not the way to be doing this. What you should be doing is as a sector you like trades down in value, that's when you want to buy more of that sector. So as cloud companies are trading down and tech companies are selling off, that's actually a better time to be buying in to those type of companies. For example, in 2020, one of the last groups of stocks to actually recover were financials. Everyone at the time hated financials. They thought it was going to be a repeat of 2009 where financials had to be bailed out and they're in a lot of trouble. I looked through the financial statements of JP Morgan and different banks and I realized they were all fine. So as sentiment was terrible with these type of stocks, with financials, I bought in heavily to JP Morgan and it's since been one of my best trades. I bought into this company when sentiment was at peak fear and concern over this company. And now it's one that everyone wants to own. So you actually want to be buying into companies trading down, not selling out of them and buying into companies that are already traded way up. And over the past month, I can see sentiment turning so negative towards tech companies. We have articles like this saying cloud stocks are off to a brutal start to 2022 as investors sour on pandemic's top performers. But most of these cloud companies are not pandemic stocks. So they're putting them in a basket like these are just pandemic companies and they'll go away when the pandemic's over. That's nonsense. Look at Netflix. People watched Netflix before the pandemic. It's not a pandemic stock. Look at Adobe. Did people only start using that during the pandemic? Look at Salesforce. That is a company that will flourish after the pandemic. We also have news out today that Goldman's David Costin says the tech disconnect is the single greatest mispricing in U.S. stocks. So he says that these companies are still widely disconnected. And now I want to go in and listen to him explain this. All right, so here's a clip from this interview with David Costin, who is the chief U.S. equity strategist at Goldman Sachs. He plays a huge role. And he explains, he explains why these companies were re-rated and why he thinks that tech companies are still widely disconnected from the rest of the market. So let's go ahead and listen to this. Now, very specifically, the single greatest mispricing in the U.S. equity market is between companies that have high expected revenue growth but low or negative margins. On the other hand, high growth companies with positive or very significantly positive uh, profit margins, that gap is uh, 
adjusted dramatically in the last year. Put some numbers, numbers around that. High growth, low margin stocks, traded at 16 times enterprise value to sales February of 2021. You know, 11 months later, they're trading at seven times. So a huge D rating that took place. Much of that took place in the last uh, month or so. We just looked at that chart illustrating the median the median valuation, and that's basically what he's saying here. Uh, and largely that's because as rates increase, the valuation or the value of that future cash flows are worth somewhat less in a higher rate environment. Uh, and that's a big issue. And so the, the gap between those two, I'd say, is the single biggest topic of uh, conversation with clients. You've had a huge derating of the fast expected revenue growth companies that have low margins. And the argument is probably that there's more to go in that readjustment. The relationship between these two categories, these two buckets of stocks are quite uh, are, are still pretty close to one another and probably should be uh, wider. So he says that there still might be room to go with this re-rating, that they still might trade a little bit lower. So I realize there's people like David Costin of Goldman Sachs and you know people like Ray Dalio that are kind of looking at the macroeconomics. They're looking at interest rates and they're doing these overall uh, median valuations of different industries and sectors. And they're giving projections based on that. And that's a fine way to invest. I don't, I don't think that's a problem if you want to invest that way and base it off of macroeconomics. That's not the way that I'm looking at this portfolio. Whether the Fed does three interest rates or four interest rates has zero effect on my investments in terms of which ones I'm making and which companies that I, I plan on buying. When I look at my portfolio, my investment in Google is not based off of interest rates. It has nothing to do with the macroeconomics. It's based off of the future growth I think YouTube will have and Google Cloud and their suite of products, right? Android as well. So I'm what's called a bottom-up investor. I'm investing with the company, the leadership, and the overall growth projection I have for that company. And then I think over time, that will defeat or beat out all the macroeconomic stuff. I think that that stuff can play a short-term role. But over time, if these companies grow substantially, they grow their revenue, they grow their profit margin, they grow their client base, and they, they grow their moat. And overall, they're just bigger, more profitable companies in the future. I think that regardless of whether interest rates are 3% or 2% or 5%, they'll come out on top in the end. So that's the way that I'm looking at this, despite all the macro news that you're hearing right now that's constantly in the news. Now, moving on, I have to mention the news about, of course, Charlie Munger and his recent buy into Alibaba. He doubled down on the stock. And by double down, the math checks out that he increased his position by 99.32%. Now, if I was Charlie, I would have upped it just a bit to get that nice round 100% increase. But regardless, he increased it by roughly, let's say, 100%. So he literally doubled down on the stock. This is another you know, somewhat shocking thing to some people. Why would he buy this stock when there's so much negative sentiment and news and, you know, there's all these concerns about it. But anybody that's actually followed Charlie Munger and studied about him, his personality and his life would know that this is nothing out of the ordinary. When a fantastic, world-class, fast-growing company that has a wide moat like Alibaba continues to grow and flourish overall and the price plummets 60% and he's already bullish on this company, He's not going to let some news articles scare him out of this holding. So in my opinion, this isn't surprising. It's in line with Charlie Munger, his entire history, his character. What would have been surprising to me, what would have actually shocked me, is not him doubling down. It would be him selling out. That would be concerning. Then I'd think, wow, he's really lost his mind. 
He waited till his stock went down 60% that he loved. He got scared out of it. And then he sold at a low, you know, probably foreseeably a low. So that would have been the shocking thing. This buying more shares of a great company as it goes down in value is not shocking. Another thing I'd like to say about Alibaba and the concerns about the Chinese government and investing with or in or alongside the Chinese government. A lot of people have wax poetic about how much disdain they have for the Chinese government. And like I've said many times, I love the US. I think it's the best country in the world. I have an American flag right there. I'm as patriotic as it gets, but you have to be completely blind if you think that the US's economy is completely separate and not invested in and alongside China. Both of our countries need each other. Both of us are heavily invested in each other's economies. We can look at some news here. This is widely known that Tesla, one of the most you know, exciting investments of our, of our generation, is heavily invested in China. They spent $2 billion on a gigafactory in China. Elon Musk went there, met with their people, and invested $2 billion in building out factories in China. That's a huge investment in China. There's no other way around it. That's a bigger investment than the one that Charlie Munger's making. In total nominal terms, it's a much more substantial investment. It's multiples bigger. And they also have rumors that Tesla is working on a second factory in China. This is a huge growth path for Tesla. Look at the overall revenue that comes from China for Tesla. They say now that Tesla's China sales have grown to nearly half the size of the company's US sales. So take the entire sales that Tesla has in the US, their biggest market, chop that in half, and that's how much they now make from China. This is critical to Tesla's growth. They would not be hitting any of their analyst expectations, their revenue growth numbers, their margin numbers, if they didn't have China. They're invested in, they are heavily reliant on China at this point. And I'm not picking on Tesla. They're not the only one. We have Disney. Disney is trying to grow in China as much as they can. They have a park there that was their most ambitious park ever, one of the biggest ones they've ever built. They've tried to get Disney Plus there with little success. They're trying to market their movies there and their merch there. This is a big potential growth path for Disney that they're still seeing resistance to. We have Starbucks. Look at the growth of Starbucks locations in China over the past 15 years, since 2005. It's now reached 4,700 locations. Starbucks is, is a partial Chinese investment. If you're investing in Starbucks, you're investing partially in China. Then we can even look at Costco. Costco, of course, only has like one location out of their 800 or so that's in China right now. So they're not really reliant on China at this point, but they're looking at it as a potential growth path. The US market for Costco's is getting somewhat saturated. They're looking for different areas to expand and China for sure is going to be one of them. They're looking at opening up another four locations total in China, rapidly multiplying the amount of stores they have in China. So Costco's also going to be heavily invested in China. And this isn't cherry picking. I could go through so many companies in the S&P 500, US-based companies that have big investments in China and are at least partially reliant on their cooperation, their government, and their revenues, right? Their market. So when I look at Charlie Munger and him being bullish on a Chinese company, people act like this is so different than what Tesla's doing. And I don't see the huge distinction here. I think it's different to some extent because you're not reliant on the VIE structure, if that's your major concern. But if your overall concern is being anywhat, somewhat reliant on the Chinese economy or having to deal with their government at all, well, if you're invested in any of these companies, you're doing the same thing. The distinction is very small between 
giving your money to a company where the executive is then investing in China and you directly investing in China. Either way, your money is being invested in China. So overall, I think a lot of the comments that act like it's so crazy that Charlie Munger would put money into Alibaba, I I think they're unwarranted unless you're really avoiding any type of company that has any exposure to Alibaba because overall, many of them do. And what he's doing, I don't think is all that crazy. Now, having said all of that, just because Charlie Munger is investing in Alibaba, does that mean it's a sure bet? There's no chance of losing money. Everyone should sell everything they own and invest all of their money in Alibaba. No, not even Charlie Munger is doing that. He doesn't have anywhere close to the majority of his net worth in Alibaba. I would never be comfortable selling all of my assets and putting it in this one company. I've said that many times. I have very low exposure to it. It's a smaller bet in my portfolio. I put $10,000 in it and that's where I'm keeping it. And so far I'm in the red, but it's starting to trade up a little bit over the past month. And that's kind of where I'm keeping this holding. I would never recommend putting a huge amount of money in one single company, especially one that's more volatile like Alibaba. And Charlie Munger doesn't know either. He could be wrong. This could be a losing bet. And he understands that. He probably looks at this as just a good bet on a company where the reward is asymmetric. There's more chance of upside than downside. But that doesn't mean there's no chance of downside. So overall, when I look at this company, I still am very positive on it. I think it has a higher likelihood of making money than losing it. But there's always the chance of this trade still going south overall. So keep that in mind when you're following bigwigs like Charlie Munger. Look at his overall exposure and don't just buy into a company like this because someone like Charlie Munger is. Now, moving on from that, last but not least, I have to comment on the news that Taco Bell has launched its first ever taco subscription service nationwide. Tacos as a service, as they call it in the industry. Um, They say, hello to the taco lovers pass. So let's go ahead and read into this. This is from the newsroom of Taco Bell itself, right from the source. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Now, Taco Bell is doing the most to kick off 2022 than virtually any company, I would add, uh, with the nationwide debut of the Taco Lovers Pass, a digital taco subscription service that takes value to the next level and is sure to satisfy any taco craving. Now, that is some bold claims. They want to satisfy any taco craving with this subscription service. Available starting today exclusively on the Taco Bell app, the Taco Lovers Pass allows fans to redeem one of seven iconic tacos a day for 30 consecutive days at participating U.S. locations, all for the price of $10. And I'm sure that asterisk says that it's subject to change, right? But right now it's $10. So let's go ahead and break this down. What this means for the future of Taco Bell. Um, First of all, is this a surprise? No, this isn't a surprise. And I hate to say I told you so, but I've been telling you so for a while. Every single company possible, imaginable, will eventually try to initiate or include some type of subscription service. Because like I've mentioned many times, subscription services are the holy grail of business models. Nothing beats them. I've never came across a business model that is overall just better economically than subscription services. So there's some companies that are are naturally fit for subscription services. And those are SaaS companies, software as a service. That's been proven to be a fantastic model for those type of companies. But now we're starting to see subscription services venture into all different type of companies that normally you wouldn't see fit with a subscription service, but they will try nonetheless. Whether it's Taco Bell, Netflix, or Adobe, we're going to see every company 
left, right, and center, try to become a subscription company. We've seen the transition with Apple over the past five years. It's gone from a hardware seller of selling these devices to now selling Apple TV+, selling Apple Fitness, selling its Apple Music subscription, selling iCloud. They're doing everything they can to sell you as many subscriptions as possible because subscriptions are king. Microsoft is way ahead of the game on this. Since around 2014, they've been moving primarily to subscription-based, and now that's the entire basis of their company. Netflix is the other one doing this. Of course, Spotify is the other one doing this. We have companies like Amazon with Amazon Prime doing this. We have Google with YouTube Premium having this be a big push into subscriptions, not just ads. So every company is trying to become a subscription company, and it comes at no surprise that even food companies are doing this as well. The taco subscription is just one of the first ones. And if I have to be honest, I think that Taco Bell is probably doing a smart thing here. They're experimenting. They're trying different things. And this just might be a big push to where lots of companies start doing this. If Taco Bell is able to make this work as a profitable model that actually spurs more business and more repeat customers, you'll see every other food chain try the same thing in various fashions and forms until they get the model down. Let's go ahead and look at the actual value here. Let me break down this particular subscription. They say that um, it's $10 for 30 consecutive days of any taco. I don't actually think this is necessarily that great a value. And I can see how this works out in Taco Bell's benefit. First of all, just on a an overall case, I think if you look at it from a basis of $10 to buy 30 tacos, that's okay value, but it's still not that insane, right? That's nothing like crazy. You're spending $10 to buy 30 tacos. That might be a better value than what they cost on an individual basis, but in a bulk order, I don't think that's too crazy. But then when you break it down even further, you can't get more than one a day. Well, college students want to eat more than one taco if they go to lunch. So every time you visit Taco Bell, your $10 for the month is only going to buy you one taco, and then you're going to be spending more money on drinks and more tacos on top of that. So they're going to get more business out of you because of the subscription. This is kind of like a buy-in to go to Taco Bell for lunch every single day. So they're going to get way more tacos sold out of this than the 30 a month. And likely students aren't going to be going or whoever's buying this is not going to be going every single day without fail. They're going to have some days that they miss. So overall, I don't think this is the best value. I actually think that it works out in the benefit of Taco Bell a lot, but I think it's an interesting play from Taco Bell and it doesn't surprise me at all. We're going to see more of this stuff in the future. Now that is all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. Make sure to subscribe to the channel, hit the bell icon, and I'll catch you in the next one.